Hey friends, this is Steve Weens, your host. As always, welcome to This Good Word. I hope you are finding ways to discover and rediscover your humanity during this time when we're all cooped up and maybe our anxiety is higher than we want it to be. Uh, the uncertainty is still there. But I hope you're finding ways to be gracious with yourself. I hope you're finding ways to be okay with some of the limitations that you have uh, these days. Um, it was never my intention to like not publish an episode for three straight weeks, but there you have it. I, whenever you know the Thursday came up, I didn't have any episodes in the bank, and I thought, man, I better crank something out. And then I thought to myself, no. You know, there's no contract that says weekly podcasts during the pandemic have to continue. Unless, of course, there is a contract. But I don't have a contract with anyone. This podcast is done um, for me, for you. Uh, is isn't connected to anything. And so for three or four weeks, whatever it was, I'm not even sure. It might have been four weeks. Uh, when I didn't have the capacity, I just didn't do it. And I think there's something to that. I mean, I felt a little at first, oh no, I, I better I better get something out. But then allowing myself to breathe and say, you know what? No, it's just not going to happen this week. And then for the next week, it's not going to happen this week. And then for the next week, I guess it's not going to happen this week either. That That's just one of the ways that I'm trying to find uh, a little grace for my own self a little peace for my own humanity. And I wonder, what are some ways that you need to do that these days as well? Um, I was talking to one of my friends uh, the other day, and I was talking about how I wish I would have handled something better in terms of my emotional reaction to something. And she said something like, you know, I think all of us are just so limited in our ability to react the way we want to react. It's, it's, there's just something about being uh, self-quarantined for, you know, two and a half months and then starting to kind of climb out of it a little bit uh, that reduces your capacity to handle certain reactions from different people, you know, like with, with, maybe the kind of elasticity that normally you have. I have less of that. And, you know, after I did my work with that person, it wasn't a big deal. It was pretty small. Uh, I also did a little work with myself. And I said, you know what? It's okay uh, to not have perfect reactions <laughs> these days. Do your work. You know, apologize. You can do that. But then don't go back and beat up on yourself for not having the best reaction to every single thing that comes your way these days. So I hope you're finding some ways to show grace to yourself, to show your humanity that, you know, really, really good things are coming out of you as well. I wonder if it might be helpful these days to take a little stock of what actually you're doing pretty well in. I mean, honestly, to take a piece of paper out, get out an actual pen, an actual piece of paper. Something happens, I think, when we get off the clickety-clack of the, of the keyboard and we get to good old analog paper and pen. 
and try to think of five things you've done in the last week that you feel pretty good about. And let me tell you, these things might be really small. <laughs> like, you didn't have that third drink that night, maybe. Or uh, you've gotten up and made your kids breakfast every single morning of this pandemic and you haven't missed one of them, you know? Or... Um, you hit a deadline that was going to be tough to hit because your your energy for finishing things is low. And I encourage you to take out a piece of paper and a pen and just write down five things that you can think of that you've that you've done well that you can say, you know what, bravo, I did that, I did that. I think our our brains are so wired up to scan for any of the ways that we've you know failed or not hit our goals or um, not responded the best ways. And then maybe we can beat ourselves up. And somehow we think if we do that, we're going to feel better, you know, or be exonerated, but we never do. We just, we just feel worse. You know what I mean? We just, we just feel worse. Um, So I hope you're finding ways to make some grace for yourself. Hope you're finding some ways to, um, to name some of the things that you're really doing okay in these days. And then I wonder if it would be helpful to just name some radical hopes. You know, as you look at the next, I don't even know how long you want to look at, three months, six months, nine months, one year. Uh, I have a trip to San Francisco with two friends that's scheduled for late September. And we were just talking, are we going to go? You know, we had, we, you guys, we had tickets to the New Order Pet Shop Boys concert in San Francisco at the end of September. Oh my gosh. Well, of course, the, the concert is delayed. Uh, you know, maybe it'll happen a year from now, late 2021. So no refunds on the tickets there. <laughs> um, but we just talked and we said, you know, let's let's hold on to our plane reservations. We certainly don't want to go if it's unsafe. We certainly don't want to go if it's, you know, if there's nothing to be open, if there's nothing to do. But if there is, you know, it's San Francisco. Let's go. So I'm kind of hoping somehow I can still go on that trip. What are some other hopes that you have? Uh, they could be small. They could be big. Maybe it's hopes for this Saturday, you know. Um, maybe it's hopes for a relationship right now. Maybe it's hopes for, um, I don't know what, but, you know, nothing crazy, you know. Like, I hope to lose 30 pounds in the next 70 days. I don't know. You know what I mean? That sounds less like a hope and more like tyranny. It's got to be life-giving, you know? Um, So anyway, I I, I wanted to give a little preamble to the actual episode. That that was just prologue. (laughs) That was just prologue. Um, But I I think it's important to take care of ourselves these days. So I hope you take some time to do that, to be gracious for yourself, to list some of the ways that you really are doing well, that you did some things well during this funky, crazy season. And then lastly, that you could take some time to write down some hopes. 
over the next three months, six months, nine months. I think it's important to hang on to some of the things that we're hopeful for. Yeah? Okay. Well, what I want to do to uh, to you, I, uh, <laughs> what I want to do to you, <laughs> what I want to do for you is I want to read the first chapter of this book that I've put out. It's called Shining Like the Sun, Seven Mindful Practices for Rekindling Your Faith. And really, what it's all about is helping you awaken to God by awakening to now. So I hope you enjoy this uh, reading of chapter one. And if you feel so compelled, you can go out and buy the book wherever you enjoy buying books. It's there for you. Enjoy. Chapter one, finding God where you are. Well, here you are, reading a book about rekindling your faith, for God's sake, despite the fact that you've long since lost the scent, despite the church and its foul theology, despite your worn-out eureka moments having long since expired. Maybe the only thing you know for sure is that some essential something has gone missing, and you're willing to look anywhere to find it. You keep trying to find God because there really are things you still want from God, and that desire is perhaps the most glorious thing about you. Question, where are you looking? There's an ancient story in which God, having recently created human beings, realized that a terrible mistake had been made. After calling the elders together, God explained, I've just created humans and now I do not know what I'm going to do. They'll always be talking to me and wanting things from me, and I won't ever get any rest. The elders furrowed their brows. One by one, they all agreed. God had a very big problem indeed. They suggested God could hide on Mount Everest, or on the moon, or even deep inside the earth. No, God said. Humans are resourceful. Eventually, they will find me there. After a very long silence, one elder whispered something in God's ear. That's it, God shouted, smiling. I'll hide inside each human. They will never find me there. The punchline is obvious. We look for God everywhere except inside ourselves. And why would we? The journey within is troubling enough without wondering if we'll find God as Mary Poppins dragging out our dirty laundry out of the hiding places, spit spot, or worse, that we'll find a kind but clear breakup letter left on the pillow. It's not you, it's me. And anyway, you've most likely already found and lost God more than once. For all we know, our search for God may have been responsible for the finding and also for the losing. But what if it's not a joke? What if God really is hidden inside of us? Maybe it feels absurd, naive, or overly self-referential to even indulge that question. If we look deep within ourselves, whatever is down there must be unbearably shy, because it only seems to poke its head out when we grieve a terrible loss, or taste the emptiness of success, or when we realize someone genuinely likes us. Indulging that question can feel a little too much like a riddle when we're looking for answers. I hate riddles. It takes a dozen or so wrong answers before you finally get the right one. And I hate how the wrong answers clutter up the space we need to figure out the right answer. But I also love riddles. I love that laugh-out-loud moment of pure joy when the answer pops into your head when you realize you were making it so much harder than it needed to be. And isn't it the absurdity of a God who would hide within humans 
at least part of what keeps us looking in the first place. It's wildly unreasonable to expect we'll find what we're looking for, but humans are notorious suckers for wildly unreasonable quests. A few of my favorite suckers include Sir Ernest Shackleton, Mary Shelley, Mahatma Gandhi, John Vanier, Martin Luther King Jr., and the Virgin Mary. Maybe it's naive to assume God even cares about what we want, but a little naivete doesn't mean our deepest desires are weightless things that float around in a zero-gravity chamber until someone packs them away again. Finally, a brief word about this wildly unreasonable quest. It is not a scavenger hunt, and we aren't looking for a needle in a haystack. There will be no searching for the face of Jesus on a tortilla. Paradoxically, this quest won't require us to find anything. We're going to need to pay careful attention to where we are instead of over-focusing on where we are going. We're going to see haystacks as great places to take naps, and we're going to let the needles find themselves. We're going to get stuck in certain places and feel tempted to leave before we should. We're going to be tempted to avoid certain places where we really need to linger. We're going to end up in places that seem like no place at all. Let the rekindling begin. God help us all. There is a way to search for God that doesn't rekindle faith as much as it rekindles busyness and behavior modification. That kind of journey, with all its earnestness and urgency, burns people out. Let's not go there. There's also a way to search for God that's so angry at the fire you grew up with that you never do anything other than deconstruct the idea of fire. That kind of journey is fun at first until you realize you're just walking in circles. Let's not go there either. But then are you left searching for a God so ambiguous and nameless that you have to pretend you're sitting around a fire even though everybody is freezing to death? There must be another way to search for God. It drove most people crazy, but Jesus talked about finding God using mostly paradoxical language like needing to lose your life if you want to find it, needing to hate your family if you want to be worthy of following him, and selling the farm to buy a field with a hidden treasure buried 10 paces west of the big oak tree. Paradox resists formulas and always makes room for mystery. The kind of faith that I believe needs rekindling is paradoxical in nature. It grows by getting pared down, and it gets strengthened by embracing the weakest parts. Meister Eckhart, the 13th century Christian mystic whose writings influenced Thomas Merton, Richard Rohr, and many other mystical guru types, never met a paradox he didn't like. He cautioned that those who seek God through a specific kind of way might end up with the way, but won't end up with God. Eckhart once said, Ours is the task of learning to seek God without a way and without a why, meaning to open ourselves to the surprising and often unsettling adventure that constitutes the search. In Meister Eckhart's Book of the Heart, Meditations for the Restless Soul, John Sweeney and Mark Burroughs have taken Meister Eckhart's dense teaching and translated it into some of the most gorgeous poetry I've ever read. I carry their little book with me wherever I go. The following poem from that book describes a paradoxical search for God that I find irresistible. Here and now. Everything hangs on the little word here and its sibling now, 
But I often forget this, keeping busy with my plans, building for a future I cannot know, and against worries I cannot finally tame. And yet you wait for me to come home to your now, which is beyond past and future, and return to your here, which is present before beginning and beyond every ending. The Wayless way of searching for God shares similarities with mindfulness and seems to be consistent with how Jesus thought about searching for God. Eckhart's Wayless way calls us again and again and again to quietly return to a place called here, where God is eternally waiting for us with love in a moment called now. If we can return to here as we unload the dishwasher, we might notice the simple beauty of a piece of handmade pottery, which might eventually help us notice all the beauty not made by human hands. If we can fully receive a hug from a good friend, we might also be able to fully receive a surprising touch from the divine. If we learn to fully enjoy each sip of coffee in the morning, we might also fully enjoy the million or so other good gifts God hides everywhere. If we can return to here in a season of pain and loss, maybe we can even be resurrected. A story is told about a time St. Francis of Assisi couldn't find God anywhere. Exasperated, he found himself alone with an almond tree in the middle of winter. Brother Almond, speak to me of God, he begged its bare branches. The dormant almond tree immediately responded by bursting into bloom. Practicing mindfulness by returning to here allows us to see each moment as a place where God is eternally waiting for us with love. Listen to that sentence again. Practicing mindfulness by returning to here allows us to see each moment as a place where God is eternally waiting for us with love. If that all sounds a little too woo-woo, and if you're starting to hear the soft banjo in the airy NPR voice right now, allow me to introduce you to the mindfulness hidden within ancient biblical Hebrew with all its sex and violence and treachery and very little banjo. In biblical Hebrew, the word for place is hamakom. Incidentally, biblical Hebrew doesn't contain vowels, so that's a transliteration. Hamakom stems from the root word kom, which means to stand. A place is where you stand or where you remain. In rabbinic literature, it is assumed that God is not only the transcendent master of the universe, but also the imminently present ground upon which one stands in each and every moment. In fact, God is often referred to as Hamakom. If God is the place where you stand, this very moment contains the entire cosmos. And if God is every place you stand, you carry the cosmos with you wherever you go. It turns out mindfulness is baked into one of the names for God. Take this brief ancient example. The first book of the Hebrew Bible is Genesis, which turns out to be mostly about brothers trying to kill each other. Cain murdered Abel after God didn't like his sacrifice. Joseph's brothers left him for dead at the bottom of a dried-out cistern. And Esau hunted his twin brother Jacob down like a dog after Jacob swindled him out of a birthright and a blessing. I have twin boys, so I know twin swindling. Let's camp there for a bit. In the story of Esau and Jacob, we read that when they were born, Esau came out of Rebekah's womb first his tiny body apparently covered in a thick blanket of red hair. When Jacob slid out next, his fist was wrapped tightly around Esau's heel as if to say, not so fast, buddy. 
As they grew up, Esau and Jacob were opposites. Esau enjoyed the simple pleasures of a bowl of stew after a day out hunting with his father, but Jacob was always hungry for what he didn't have. It's complicated, but Esau accepted Jacob's manipulative offer of a bowl of his famous stew in exchange for his birthright. Just wait, it gets worse. Jacob also stole the blessing meant for the firstborn, which would have secured Esau's future by gluing some hair on his arms and hoodwinking their father Isaac, who was blind as a bat, into blessing him instead. These two events left Esau starved of a future that was rightly his, while Jacob ended up with a belly full of hope. Before the dust of those decisions settled, Jacob was on his way to his uncle's house to get himself a wife from among his cousins. A quick recap of Genesis so far, blood, murder, treachery, and now incest. How in the world is this searching for God? Jacob's faith was rekindled when he fell asleep. Genesis 28:11. But on the way to that place, Jacob came to a certain place, Hebrew, Hamakom, and stayed there for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, Hamakom, he put it under his head and lay down in that place, Hamakom. The Hebrew scriptures were written with a gauzy subtlety, which can sometimes border on subterfuge. Those who learn to pay attention to the small things often discover what others pass right over. Small things like repeating a word three times in one verse. When Hamakom is repeated, it's a hint that you need to start asking some questions. What, not where, was this certain place? Although Jacob got everything he wanted, what did he still lack? And what happened when the sun set? In Jewish culture, a day doesn't begin at sunrise. It begins when you can see the first few twinkling stars after the sun has gone down. At the beginning of this new day, with 10,000 yesterdays behind him and a million tomorrows ahead, Jacob fell asleep. He dreamed of a ladder on which angels climbed up and down, above which God stood and spoke to Jacob. I am the God of your father and his father, God tells Jacob, and I will bless you with many descendants. Even if the twinkling stars tell you today is over, you haven't yet arrived at tomorrow if you know exactly what it's going to hold. If you know, you're stuck in yesterday. You're not at the beginning of a brand new day if you think you can see everything you need to see and if you think you know everything there is to know. I warned you, the Bible sometimes borders on subterfuge. God, it turns out, wasn't finished speaking to Jacob. I will be with you and keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave until I have done what I promised you. Genesis 28, 15. This is Jacob's moment of returning to here and finding God waiting for him in that now. This is what finally snapped Jacob out of his lifelong slumber. This is Jacob's laugh out loud moment of pure joy. Stealing his brother's birthright and blessing had been absurdly self-referential, and it was naive to believe that a false blessing, sending him to a new place, would launch him into a true future. Rather, God's words were the blessing that Jacob had been searching for all along, and he was aware and awake enough to receive it, even though he was paradoxically asleep when it was offered to him. The effect of his father's blindness was reversed when he found himself standing in the place of being seen by God. The pain of his twin brother's otherness was healed by touching the reality of union with God so deeply that he knew he would never be alone again. 
When Jacob woke up from his dream in that certain place, a foundational shift had taken place. When he realized where he really was for the first time in his life, he didn't want to go anywhere else. He was within God. Jacob said, surely the Lord was in this place, Hamakom, and I was not aware of it. In that moment, Jacob was the almond tree that burst into bloom. For Jacob to wake up, he needed to fall asleep. Notice how Jacob tells the story of his moment of transformation. By saying the Lord was in this place, past tense, and he was not aware of it, past tense, he's telling us we will find the Lord in this now, present tense, if we can simply return to this here, present tense. When you can return to here, you can come alive to the reality that God is found there, wherever there is. When you touch life deeply in each moment, you come alive to the reality that the entire cosmos is contained in this very moment. We'll get to where we need to go when we learn to be where we are. It's how the way of mindfulness is made. Can you stand in a place long enough to see where you really are? Can you stand in a place long enough to see who is there with you? Can you stand in a place long enough to see you don't need to go anywhere else? The way of mindfulness is gentle, like falling asleep and waking up. Its slow and steady work is marked by increasing levels of wonder in ordinary moments, enabling you to be present and at one with those around you and with what you're doing. Another brief example of paying attention to the moment is one that doesn't include any treachery or blood or incest or stew. One day, the modern mystic Thomas Merton was out running errands in a certain place, the intersection of Fourth and Walnut in Louisville, Kentucky, when he became aware and awake to where he really was. As Merton wrote later, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people, that they were mine and I theirs, that we could not be alien to one another even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation in a special world, the world of renunciation and supposed holiness. The sense of liberation from an illusory difference was such a relief and such a joy to me that I almost laughed out loud. I have the immense joy of being man, a member of a race in which God himself became incarnate. As if the sorrows and stupidities of the human condition could overwhelm me, now I realize what we all are. And if only everybody could realize this, but it cannot be explained, there is no way of telling people that they are all walking around, shining like the sun. Then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts, the depths of their hearts where neither sin nor desire nor self-knowledge can reach, the core of their reality, the person that each one is in God's eyes. If only they could all see themselves as they really are. If only we could see each other that way all the time. There would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. But this cannot be seen, only believed, and understood by a peculiar gift. Merton found God where he found himself, which also happened to be where he found everybody else. By writing about his experience, he indulges in a little biblical subterfuge himself. He knows that the only way to get people to embark on a journey to discover that they are shining like the sun is to tell them that he can't tell them about it. Thomas Merton may have been brilliant, but he wasn't a unicorn. That moment on 4th and Walnut suddenly came after years of deep pain and loss, 
when silence was his only companion. For some of us, it may take a similar childlike wonder for us to believe there is a place in the depth of our hearts where our secret beauty shines like the sun. For others, it may require indulging in naivete or agreeing to go on a wildly unreasonable quest or giving in to some carefully planned subterfuge. If you engage in a mindful search for God by learning to become aware and awake to where you are, you will find a peculiar gift waiting for you. You and I are like St. Francis, begging someone to speak to us of God. He asked and was given an almond tree in bloom. I offer you seven metaphorical almond trees, seven mindful practices that show us how to truly come alive in various ways. Number one, to become aware and awake to the present moment, I practice attentiveness. Number two, to return to who I am, I practice ordinariness. Number three, to touch life deeply in every moment of daily life, I practice simplicity. Number four, to live in harmony with those around me, I practice rhythm. Number five, to be present with those I consider other, I practice conversation. Number six, to be truly alive with what I am doing, I practice delight. Number seven, to be at one with all creation, I practice restoration. As you engage with these mindful practices in your own unique way, I hope you experience deep levels of joy and freedom. I hope you grow in self-compassion and in love for others. I hope you experience the surprising nearness of God in ways that wake you up to the possibility of human flourishing. I hope you come to love the moment of letting go as much as you come to love the moment of grabbing hold. And I hope you see yourself shining like the sun. Ever shining light. Some days it seems the whole world is tilting the wrong way. It might be up, but I am somehow down. And right is always somewhere against my wrong. And then you remind me that within me burns an ever shining light, which no night or stumbling down can ever fully dim or finally smite. Hey friends, thanks so much for listening to This Good Word. If you love this podcast, there's three ways that you can support my work. One is by jumping on Patreon, patreon.com slash thisgoodword. You can become a patron at various levels and get lots of good free stuff, including free tickets to any live events that I do, signed books, and other stuff. The second way is to share your favorite episodes via Twitter and Facebook. Uh, email, however it is that you share content. Let some friends know that you love it. And then third is to go on iTunes and leave a rating or a review. So thanks so much, my friends. We are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. We are human and holy, and we are in it together.